This podcast contains potentially adult language, adult themes, definitely drinking, and possibly sexual context. Listener discretion is advised. Weird if we don't have our video going to talk to somebody, you know, okay. talking to the Okay, cool. Oh, okay. We're recording. Woohoo! Welcome to Drinking <laughs> with Authors. Da, da, da. I'm your host, Erica Lance. With me is JM Paquette. And our amazing guest today is Lynn Waddell. Woo! I'm waiting for no, Adam at a, at a woo laugh track. <laughs> okay. So the first thing we do is we talk about what we're drinking. So I have gotten myself a gin, even though gin, Jen is, you know, scrunching her face because I said gin. So it's a gin and tonic with lime and pomegranate. It's super Ooh. fancy. It's super fancy. And it's in my green dragon cup, like a boss. Ooh. Jen, what are you drinking? Seltzer, like a boring person. <laughs> Jen's allergic to alcohol, so she doesn't drink anything. She is a boring person. Boring I seltzer. Have, okay, okay, Lynn, what? Oh, whatever. What are you yeah, drinking, well, you know, Lynn? There's things for people who don't drink alcohol, you know, it's called medical marijuana. So. <laughs> 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 yeah. yeah, I'm drinking a mimosa, orange juice, and Trader Joe's champagne, so it should probably hit me really hard, you know, <laughs> with like a headache. Yeah, well, I hope not a headache, but I, I hope it does hit you really hard, makes it even better. Okay, <laughs> so I, I got the opportunity to meet you many years ago, we're not going to say how many, many years ago, and you wrote a book called Fringe Florida, mm-hmm. which is super apropos right at this moment in time, considering what the number one show on Netflix is right at this moment. Oh, wow. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So uh, Fringe Florida, tell us a little bit about the idea for this book. Oh, okay. Well, I, um, you know, I've been a freelance journalist for years, um, you know, covering all these major things in Florida. You know, anytime there's like a national story breaks, I would be sent out to whatever terrorist or mass shooting or whatever, not, not fun stuff, but I'd always meet really interesting, you know, quirky people. And that didn't really fit into what the article I was writing. <laughs> and plus, and plus before I even, you know, was freelancing, I worked for creative loafing, which, you know, as an alternative, you look for those kind of things anyway. So, so I had some connections with people already and ideas and I thought, you know, why not do this book? Cause it just seemed kind of like a, something that I felt needed to be written, you know, the people's no, stories. Totally. Need- I think it's, I think it's, I, I love this book cause you really did kind of find sort of the underground books. People don't really talk uh, underground stories that people don't even necessarily talk about even creative loafing. Great. Um, uh, publication, but it some of this stuff is stuff that's not talked about at all. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's kind of what I wanted to go for. I wanted to try to find things that really weren't being talked about as much, or if they've been talked about, to find a different way, you know, of showing a different aspect of it, you know, because people talk about like Bike Week all the time, you know, but it's always the testosterone side of Bike Week, you know, and I kind of was interested in the idea of like a women's biker club. You know, that that yeah. to me resonated, you know. No, totally. So when you when you set out to do this, I love I love the cover, um, which we're, we're going to post and everybody can find it. But the back cover has a furry on it in a, yeah. a bondage outfit. Yeah. So <laughs> you, you, went down, yeah. 
I love the fact that uh, Jen is blushing for some reason. Are you furry, Jen? Or are you just not telling? No? Okay. Clearly. <laughs> <laughs> I need an outlet so- of some kind. <laughs> <laughs> BDSM furries. So um, when you were doing, tell us a little bit about your journey in getting these particular stories together. Well, you know, I had a long list of ideas, right, that I you know, shared with the publisher and, um, and I really wasn't, the, the fetish thing wasn't so much on my list, but then I saw that they were having fetish con in Tampa and I thought, this sounds kind of interesting, I'm going to go. And when I went, um, you know, I, I saw Bernie Bondage Bunny and I was like, oh my gosh, this is great. <laughs> this is so nice. And then, and then the pony people, you know, the people that uh, are into pony play. And that pony was totally play. fascinating to me. I was just so, um, just so curious about it. Like, what is it that makes people want to dress up like a pony? You know, I mean, and and that was that was one of the more fascinating chapters to me because I didn't really know anything about a lot of these fetishes, you know, and so it was something really new, and, and that was kind of exciting to me when I learned about something new, you know. And the people were great. I mean, they were so um, they were so nice and and so willing to talk. And the pony couple. Uh, Pony groom Tim and Pony girl Lindsay, you know they they actually I talked them into letting me come to their house, and uh, which was this own kind of scary journey for me. <laughs> I would <laughs> think so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And my husband dropped me off outside their house, and because he he drove me over there, and he was going to meet up with his uh, niece that also lived in uh, Deland, and uh, and so he just drops me off at this house, kind of isolated and I'm sitting there going, Oh my God, I'm trying to hand signal to him like, you know, two and a half, one and a half hours. Cause I had told him two hours and then I was trying to go, no, one and a half. <laughs> <laughs> but it ended up being wonderful. They ended up being very gracious and, um, it was probably one of the best interviews I've ever done because they were so self-aware of, you know, what they were doing and how they appeared to other people. And do you think were when you were doing all these interviews? Obviously, you you got um, people in the in the fringe parts of the state to talk to you about things. Did you ever did ever anything ever go a path different, like very different than you thought it would when you initiated the story? Um, there were some things. There was like a. I mean, well, I mean, in terms of things that like didn't work out, you know, like I was, I had this idea, I was going to do something about drug culture and, um, and I, I wanted to, and I, you know, it's kind of hard to do, right. Cause it's an illegal thing, you know, but uh, I was thinking about how to, uh, look at like the, from a retrospective of the Miami cocaine drug days and maybe going down and do a modern, uh, revisit to locations and seeing what's happening now and that kind of thing. Ended up spending too much time uh, riding around, uh, not being able to get into gated communities. And it just it just really wasn't fun, you know, because it being stuck in traffic and everything. I was like, oh, it's not good. And so I um, I'm looking at the New Times while I'm down there, and I'm looking in the back and I'm looking at all these ads, and I was like, oh my god, this is really this is the drug culture here, you know. It was the, it was the pill mills. You know, and this is when that was yeah. going on, but before it started, they started cracking down on it. Yeah. So I went to one. Oh, wow. 
Okay. I went to one and uh, out, of, out of just curiosity, it was in Fort Lauderdale, you know, it was just like an old strip mall. And uh, it was, it was really kind of depressing though. Uh, you know, I mean, it was, it was a total cross section of demographics there, you know, everything from like a soccer mom to like a homeless looking guy to somebody in a Beamer, you know? And, um, they gave me a thing to fill out and they said, Oh, well you need to get an x-ray first. And they gave me a card and you, you can go down here and you can pay, um, what was it? Like 150, $175 to get an x-ray and then you come back and then we'll see you. <laughs> And so I started doing, I started to think about that, but then I was like, you know, that just takes this book in a whole other realm and a really kind of dark realm that's not, you know, it just didn't fit with the rest of the book. So, so that's something that I decided to live. Plus it was something, even though technically the pill mill stuff, people were getting it legally, we know it was kind of illegal. (laughs) So I didn't want to color other people in the book with doing something illegal you know, if some people were doing something illegal, not others, you know, no, it would make totally. it together, you know. No, that makes sense. One of my, um, one of the uh, stories in the book that I thought was really interesting, and this is how I'm going to pull it back to what's happening modern dates, is about the people trading animals. So the people oh, yeah. that buy and sell the exotic animals. And I don't think people realize how big that is in Florida. Well, That's now cute. maybe they do, but. Now maybe they do, I don't know. I mean, you know, in the, even in the documentary, uh, and I say documentary in a loose sense here <laughs> for Tiger King, but, you know, they had a map at one point where they showed uh, where all these, like, backyard zoos are, and, you know, and, and it was very quick, but you can see that most of them were in Florida that yeah. they had. And, and so we have, I mean, just so much. And it was that was another that was another chapter that was really disturbing to me. That was actually the one that was hardest for me to keep my own personal opinions out of, because I felt like, you know, in most of these cases where people are doing this stuff, you know, they're not hurting anybody. But in, in the case of an exotic animal, you know, you, you could be hurting not just yourselves but other people and the environment for that matter. So it was really hard for me to like not do that. And then I started seeing all the the kind of the shady stuff and, and how it's so poorly regulated and the reporter and me started wanting to go in that direction. And I had to kind of pull back and say, no, you know, this is about the people that have the animals, not about, you know, that story. So how do you keep yourself focused? Like, do you go into a story saying, you know, this is my target audience or do you say like, no, this is the information I want? Like, what's your process? Well, that is it. That is the, the question. That's why I spend a lot of time on some chapters, you know, a lot, I mean, all the chapters really, but it, it, like in the, the animal chapter, I did get off focus because I was starting to go down that road and, um, and I had to just, you know, just go through it. Basically I had to work my way through it and, and say, I mean, I spent almost, I spent almost a week trying to find out how many tigers there were in Florida and and just finding that out, you think that would be a real simple question, but and, you know, get an answer. No. And and then I realized, okay, you know, that's really I could be spending all this time on that, but that's really not what my book is about. My book's about the people, you know, who collect these and stuff. So so even though I would love to know that number, 
and and I can say all of this stuff that's wrong with this picture of how these are regulated, that's really not my story. And it was really hard. And I had, and a lot of it's talking through it, like with my husband and my best friend who acted as my editor, you know, just having these long conversations and them trying to go, no, no, you know, pull me back. <laughs> what was your favorite chapter? What was your absolute favorite part about writing these books? Like your favorite story that you got into and that you just maybe was, didn't have to take you down all these different paths where you had to pull yourself back and was just fun. Oh gosh. You know, all of them were fun and in their own way. Um, and I would get, you know, and I tend to go down this rabbit hole with each of them. I mean, in, in a way in terms of like the one that was the most interesting to me was probably, like I said, the fetish chapter, cause I had no knowledge of that. And, it, and it's just so, uh, there's just not a lot out there written about it, and it was just so interesting. But in terms of just, like, fun, doing something fun, was probably, like, the mudding chapter, you know, when we went out and actually rode on one of these um, swamp buggies and in the swamp park, you know, in the mud park. And I think my husband enjoyed that, too, because he felt, you know, it was not as threatening. <laughs> so we're out here <laughs> around. And, you know, you're just watching all this just totally, like, Mad Max meets, you know, Redneck Spring Break kind of situation. And and we were and we were on this vehicle that we were somehow safe on that, even though that seems kind of crazy to be safe on anything in a mud park. But uh, but it was when you're on the biggest one of the biggest vehicles in the park, you're safer. <laughs> I would think so. We used to go dune bugging in California, and man, those things would flip. And you learn really quickly how easy it is for you to flip a dune buggy back on its. <laughs> oh wheels. yeah, yeah. But that's yeah, a thrill so, that you could flip, you know. Yeah. You know, I mean, I mean, it's funny that weird way, but yeah. Yeah, no, it's funny that that's the thrill. By the way, we could totally lose control of our vehicle and flip it over. Right. So up. So you are a journalist at heart. Talk about when you decided you wanted to write, because journalism, you're writing for a living. When did you decide that? Oh, when I was very, very young. Uh, I wanted to be a writer from the time I was probably maybe in the maybe sixth or seventh grade. And um, I liked writing stories. And then when I was in high school, I would write our high school news. And I would, you know, our local paper had a thing where each high school had a thing on Friday where they would post their news. You know, like who was elected student body president, you know, just the basic factual things of what's going on. And I did that every week in high school. And so I was really, um, you know, kind of started early. And then I kind of burned out. That's why I'm burned out. Now I'm like burned out on it. You know, I'm like, oh God. You know, but uh, but I was really interested in it at an early age. And I would say probably the first thing that made me want to be a writer was uh, reading To Kill a Mockingbird. Just talking about that book. I love To Killing Mock To Kill a Mockingbird is a book. I love that book. I think it's one of the uh, amazing stories. Did you ever want to do fiction writing? Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. And that was always, you know, my plan always was that, oh, I'll do journalism, you know, uh, for 10 or 15 years and then I'll start writing fiction. You know, of course, you know, that didn't that didn't really pan out. I mean, I've continued. I mean, I've written fiction, you know, I've written short stories and I've got like 
actually literally a novel on my shelf in a box behind me, you know? <laughs> um, and that has always been my goal. And then after, after I finished, um, this book, I thought, you know, my plan had been, okay, I'm going to do this nonfiction book and then they'll help me then maybe get a fiction book published. But what I didn't realize was that after I finished this nonfiction book, I went through this period where I just couldn't write anything. I couldn't read. I couldn't finish a book reading it. I couldn't write anything. Um, I don't know. It was weird. It was really weird. It was like the first time in my life I felt like I didn't want to write. And that was such an alien feeling to me. I didn't know what to do with it. And how oh, did wow. you get out of that? Um, time. Um, and... Um, you know, I'm still not reading like I used to read. And I think it was, um, well, it's kind of hard for me to know. I can try to figure out. I mean, like my mother died the year that my book was released. And so I was I was grieving a lot. I think I was depressed. I think that's really a lot of what it was. And menopause, you know, and everything else in the world you, you go through. And But it was just a really bizarre thing you know, to want something your whole life and then to suddenly have like no desire. It was, it was just like a, some kind of switch went off, you know, and I'm still trying to process it, what it is, what it was, you know, but I am sorry. I have started writing again. Um, and I think part of it is just starting to write again and just do it. And then, and then it's like a muscle memory, you know, you, you, you comes back to you. So your fiction writing, what kind of fiction writing are you doing? What is it, What is this book behind you in the box? Well, the book behind me in the box is a book I wrote about. Uh, it's, a, it's a mystery, and it's kind of a quirky mystery set in Las Vegas, where I lived uh, for five years. And it's about, <clears throat> it's, a, it's like a casino murder mystery. And your protagonist is a female reporter that covers the casino industry. Which, of course, I did in real life. But this is a fictional story, you know. And and so it's quirky because, you know, just like Florida, Las Vegas is really quirky. Yeah. Know? I mean, you know, when people talk about things being crazy in Florida, they really hadn't spent a lot of time in Vegas if they think that Florida is the capital. Because, I mean, Vegas in itself is just, like, insane, you know. <laughs> totally. But what happens there Florida, stays man. there. Yeah. Right. And Everything that happens in Florida gets advertised everywhere. Exactly. Exactly. You know, that's what's so interesting is because, like, in Vegas, people just expect it. So it doesn't make the news because it's just, like, old hat. You know, you just know it. But in Florida, people shine this light on it and make it seem like we're the only people in the world that do this, you know? Yeah. No, totally. Well, so why is it in a, in a box instead of with a cover on it? On Amazon? <laughs> well, you know, it's hard. When you go back... And you revisit something, and then I started. I started going back to it, and then I wanted to start changing this and start changing this. And I started wanting to make the plot more. I was like, oh, I need to add another layer to the plot. You know, I wanted to write this sub layer, subplot layer, and and it was going to involve me having to learn more about accounting, which is like I'm like my numbers, you know. And um, because I wanted to have it have a not just a kind of a mob uh, element, but also a corporate criminal element too, white collar crime element. 
because that was kind of one of the things that um, Las Vegas is, you know, when you talk about the casino industry, you know, people like to think about back to the days when, you know, the mob, they would say mob ran the casinos and stuff. Well, now, you know, corporations run the casinos. And and, and sometimes there's not a lot of difference. <laughs> I was <laughs> going to say, I don't think that's very different, just has a, a name with ink on the end of it. <laughs> right. Exactly. 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 But I mean, but you know, it, it gives it, it gives it this, uh, you know, legality, I guess, and stuff. And, and in the sense that people are, you know, above the law, but when reality, you know, this is a lot of shady stuff or at least an very unethical stuff, you know? So you, you have this and you go, I have to learn accounting to do this. And then you go, Nope. And put it back on the shelf. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I did. I'm like, uh, I need to talk to somebody. And I started trying to find somebody to help me. Uh, and then I just got, I just got, discussed, I just got discouraged. So, and so then, you know, um, I started to want to write about other things, you know, and, and like my husband says, you know, well, you were a different person when you wrote that. And, and I'm like, yeah, you know, you're, you're right. It is. It's hard to go back to something that you wrote a long time ago and, and then to try to revive it when you have, you have a different perspective now, you know, and that's just like the other book that I had started. The other book I had started, actually I started when I was about 20 and, and I started it and I wanted to, and I wrote like about eight chapters and, um, and then, and then things, my view on the world started changing from the way I had it at that time. And so it started making me question my, uh, my plot, you know, like, do I really want this character to come out looking okay? Because I don't think he really would. Because <laughs> no, I think he's totally like, life experience starts to influence the way you're. Yeah, yeah, and it's really hard. You know, it's hard not to let your life experience influence. And maybe that's not bad. I don't know. I'm still trying to work through that. <laughs> well, I think it's true, and it's interesting because you are a journalist, and like uh, Tamara Lush. Uh, is an, another journalist that has done some writing that I've talked to, and I'm only using that analogy because I know her. And it, I, I have to imagine it's very difficult because it's a different kind of writing. You are telling a story when you're a journalist, absolutely, but it's a different kind of writing than when you're writing a fiction story, right? Yeah. And, um, yeah. and do you feel like that's that in itself is a hard transition? Because your book is... Um, more towards journalistic than like a fiction story. Cause obviously right. it's real people, real, you know, stories. Do you, where does that lie for you? Yeah, it is. It is a, an issue. I mean, to me, fiction is more liberating because, you know, you're not having to stop and go, Oh my gosh, did I spell their name right? Or did, is the color of the dress, was that the color of the dress they were wearing? You know, that kind of thing. Um, and so you're not, you're allowed to, just kind of go into the dream state, you know, and just let it, and whatever comes out, comes out. Um, but then when you go back and you read it, it's hard to separate that kind of editor of the fiction editor from the nonfiction editor going, oh, is this believable? You know, because uh, you want it to be, you're like, oh, and then, and then you worry, and then you worry that, oh my gosh, you know, somebody's going to think I'm really writing about this person because this character has some characteristics of this real person. And they're going to think that this story is about that person when actually it's not, you know, what, well, you know what I'm saying? 
No, have you totally. thought about writing under a pen name to avoid that connection? Because then it wouldn't be you connected. You know what I mean? It wouldn't be part of your real life writing. Then you can yeah. write whatever you wanted. Yeah, I have thought about that. I have thought about that a lot, doing doing the pen name. And it's kind of a fun idea, too, you know, just to be able to be like, somebody else because <laughs> that's the whole point of fiction is to be somebody else to escape i mean that's why we write a fiction right a lot of while we read fiction we escape you know have you come up with a pen name no, i want to know what your pen name possibilities are yeah yeah maybe we could come up with one i couldn't you know i had i had uh I had thought about like using, you know, old family names or something like that, but probably should come up with something even better, you know, because I don't have really good family names that lend themselves to like very literary, you know, <laughs> just, just flow off your tongue. <laughs> That's one thing. It's interesting when I see it's it's funny you say that. It's interesting when I see pen names or, or, or author names, I should say, because I don't even think they're pen names. And they're not easy to pronounce and or spell because when you say them from, I'm just saying, hook on fire. There are some names I, I said one earlier and it was, it was terrible. And I'm like, this is, I wonder if these people think about that aspect of it when they put the book out and go, it's great. I mean, actors used to do this all the time is take their names and make them very simple to say, you know what I mean? George right. Day, you make it very right. simple to say the name and that's not the case so much anymore. That's made a change. I'd say probably in the last 15 years or so, like you actually see people's real names, so to speak, instead of their, their um, stage name. But I, I often wonder that with people's pen names or their real names is I go, didn't somebody say to you, Hey, this is really hard to spell. So if somebody goes, Hey, you should go read this book by blah. And then you can't find it because you don't even have any clue how to spell that name when you're yes. going to look for it. That's a very good point. You know what? That is a very good point. Because I think about um, like like Anne Rice, you know, the pen name that she wrote, The Claiming of Sleeping Beauty Under. And mm. I can't even pronounce it, you know. Uh, but I know that she it was cute. a lot of <laughs> Yeah, it was like a it was it was not an easy to spell name, you know, and everything. And it's kind of weird that she would have chosen that. I don't know. Yeah. Why. No, totally. And I think it's funny because that that's the thing. Some uh, the similarly to titles of books, like when you put a title on a book that is very hard to say or pronounce the title of the book, mm-hmm. it's a similar thing. It's like I feel like you're almost a little bit shooting yourself in the foot from a marketing standpoint, you know. To, oh, yeah. to be able to. Well, like my, my book, French Florida, people think that I'm saying French Florida. Ah. French? And <laughs> French. I'm like, somebody was like, French? And maybe it is my accent, that, you know, because I have such a southern accent. Maybe people think I'm saying French or something, but I'm not. I'm saying French. And, and I don't know why. And so I'm like, okay, maybe that wasn't the best thing, but I just didn't, you know, I wasn't. No, that I just, I think your title is perfect. I, I think it's them, not you. It's kind of like my last name is Lance. And for whatever reason, when I'm on calls with like customer service places, they're like Lamp, L-A-M-P-E. I'm like, no, I said, La- what? Does it sound like that? Did I go to a hole? Do I sound like that when I'm saying Lance? It's called a Lance. Hello. 
It's and then I have to go, Lance. So I started saying Lance, like Lance a lot. And then they're like, oh. And I'm like, do I just sound like I'm saying Lamp? What the hell? Anyway. Okay. We are going to take a quick break and we'll be back in just a minute with Lynn Widow. Hey, thank you for listening to Drinking With Authors. We wanted to let you know that if you're an aspiring author out there and you'd like to be on our podcast, you can email us at drinkingwithauthors at gmail.com. Or if you guys have a question, comment, want to tell us some little tidbit of interesting news, you can always direct message us or comment on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. We love that you're listening. We love that you're out there. And we look forward to hearing from you. And, and we are back. You're back. Yeah, we're back. Okay, we're back. Super back. So just talking about how none of us are wearing pants, which is, you know, a life goal. I appreciate that. I want to <laughs> talk about, um, you have uh, on your Amazon page, you have the burning bush. What What is the burning bush, my friend? Volume two. You know, I don't understand. What are you saying? It's on my Amazon page. It's not even to you as an author. Yeah. Oh, you might want to check that out. It's it's linked to you, and I think it's supposed to be under a different Lynn Waddell, but I was like, what? <laughs> oh, my God. No, that is not my – that is so weird that you said that because I have not seen that. Because, you know, it's one of those things I don't go on my own Amazon page and look at it, you know, that often or anything. Because Why had- authors should do that? Because right now you are linked to The Burning Bush Volume 2, a simplified and easy-to-read summation of scripture. Oh, Wow. Wow, I'm an expert that I did not know about. Uh, <laughs> that is pretty wild because do you know what? That is so weird because this guy called me from one of these scam publishing things about a week ago and said, oh, you're the author of The Burning Bush and I want to talk to you about your book and everything. And I'm like, no, I'm not. I'm not the author of a book by the Burning Bush. I don't know why you're saying that. And he goes, oh, and he didn't tell me that it was linked on Amazon. He just said, oh, I think that you know, maybe this is real. And he goes, I said, no, I wrote this other book, you know, that's quite different. <laughs> and exactly. Then he and then I look up what the company was, and it's one of those companies, you know, that is for – uh, they try to wheel, you know, get authors to pay them money to promote their book and all this kind of stuff, and it's one of those scam things, you know. And he thought that I had written this burning bush book. And I'm like, why would he think that? It didn't occur to me that it was linked on Amazon. So now after we get off, I'm going to have to look this up. It's somehow. You got to go. You got to go unlink yourself from it because it's yeah, rather yeah, that, fascinating. That's very, that is very unfortunate. I mean, because when he said the burning bush, I was like, that sounds like some kind of Bible book. Why would anybody associate that with me? Good grief. You know? Um, <laughs> The things you learn on podcasts, but it's interesting you brought up that um, promotional scam thing, because I don't think, um, especially authors starting out, realize that uh, obviously there's some legitimate ways to promote your books, but there is a ton of people who will try to scam you into giving them money to um, promote your book, you know, like, and, and take money from you to not get good results, because you have to do very specific, depending on what genre you write, targeted advertising to sell your book. You can't uh-huh. just, you know, it's not number of Twitter followers they've made up from, you know, some algorithm. You have to absolutely have it honed in and continuous. And 
Right. Again, depends on your genre. So do you think, um, I was um, surprised that we haven't had a Fringe Florida 2 yet. Have you thought about <laughs> writing a sequel? Because I think you could write a sequel. I love that I made you cough up on the mimosa, but. I don't know. My husband would like probably divorce me if I even said that. Um, seriously. No, I mean, you know, we've, we've talked about it, but no, I just, I really don't want to do another one. I actually, um, I, one thing about writing, I think is what, what's most important is you, is you do what really speaks to your heart, you know? And yeah, I could do another one and I could probably sell it. And, and, you know, it's one of those things that like, like your therapist says, Oh, that's a should not a want, you know? And, um, and so I feel like if my heart's not in it, that's not what I should do, you know. Um, and maybe another, maybe, maybe I won't ever say never because, you know, you change. Your outlooks on the world changes all the time. But, um, but right now, that's not really what I want to do. I'd really rather write fiction, you know. Well, how much genres? Oh, go ahead. You go first. I was just saying, how how much of your like life and energy went into Fringe Florida? How how long did it take you to do all the research and write it? Oh, it took me a good three years. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So it took it took a it took a a lot of my time, and I mean, the last year I did not do anything else uh, writing wise. I mean, I I turned down writing assignments, you know. Um, and even earlier before that, I was, I was scaling, obviously scaled back on the assignments and stuff. And it was also, of course, during the recession, which made it, um, easier in the sense that, you know, there, there were, you know, publications were failing <laughs> that I was working for. So, so it was a good time in that respect, but it was also the same time my mom was sick that whole, the whole time I was working on the book. So I was having to break away you know, from work and then go up and to North Alabama and help her through some kind of, you know, near death crisis kind of thing, you know, uh, because it was one of those illnesses where it was a long illness and they didn't know what was wrong and they couldn't figure it out. You know, they kept misdiagnosing and that kind of thing. And ultimately she had cancer. Um, but, um, so, you know, like when I was with the biker chicks over in Daytona, you know, I was staying over there and then I get the call that she was going to maybe have to have heart surgery. So I had to just leave there and go uh, to be with my mom, you know, and I was up there for like two weeks. So so that was like this constant thing. And uh, it made the book really difficult, you know, to switch gears you know, and some people were like, oh, well, you should have written this book as like your journey and, and all this kind of stuff. I said, no, but it would have been a, it would have been a much different book, you know, mm-hmm. because what I was going through personally at the time, it would have been, it wouldn't, it would just been much different, a different kind of book. And I don't think people necessarily would have liked it. <laughs> it's um, a companion piece. <laughs> it's a companion piece, right. I'd have to write the companion piece. And, uh, so, um, so, you know, so that probably colors it, too, you know, but why I don't like the idea of doing another one, because it brings back a lot of those kind of, you know, there was a lot of bad memories associated with it during that same time. Um, and but I just feel like, I don't know, if I was going to do another nonfiction book, I think I would want to do another nonfiction book about something that is. There's, there's so many really serious, serious things like like climate change. 
and things like that that we're facing now. You know, I've been kind of obsessed with climate change. Before the coronavirus, I was obsessed with climate change. <laughs> and I was reading and, and everything I could and starting to work on some things uh, surrounding that for my nonfiction writing. I think it's great. And it's really interesting the impact corona is having on the climate, too. Not as dramatic yeah. as overall climate change, but like we have an office in South Africa, and one of the things is is there are lions all over the roadways now, and all these cool. creatures because there's nobody driving. So where before they were aware and they stayed off, like they're just finding you know entire lion prides laying on the road because it's nice and comfortable and whatever. And it's um, you know you look at L.A. and the smog band is pretty much gone from LA right now. And you go look oh. at what a difference that makes on it. I think that's a great idea. I think that would be a great piece. And I, th I think the more education we can put out there around that, since we have so many people going, it's not happening. La la la. Like you're just like, right. what, you know? Well, I know um, we're here so ground zero too, you know, in Florida. I mean, we're like, for the U S we are ground zero in Florida. Oh, yeah, no, totally. Even though our governor right now is pretending that none of this is happening and everything's fine and we're all good. And, yeah, um, right. There's a there's a movie called Eric the Viking, which is one of my favorite <laughs> movies. It has Tim Robbins yeah. in it. But the reason I bring this up is there's a scene in that movie where they go to this island of all these peaceful people, the Vikings. Up. Yeah. And part of the problem is if you spill blood on this island, then the island sinks into the ocean, right? And so, of course, Vikings, blah, blah, right. blood is spilled on the island. The island starts sinking, and the female character, who's obviously attracted to Eric the Viking, is trying to tell her dad, like, let's get on the boats. Let's get out of here because mm -hmm. the island is sinking. And he's like, nope, we're merriment. They're playing bands, whatever. They're like, this is not <laughs> happening. Everybody drinks. And the <laughs> island is just sinking on the screen. And the moment the governor was like, I think we can reopen schools. And this is just an old people thing and blah, blah. I literally, that's the scene that flashed into my head is like, we're all drinking. It's not happening. We're good. Let's, let's open uh -oh. back up the beaches. And I'm like... <laughs> Oh, I know, I know, and, and and it's such a weird, it's such a weird time too, as a as a writer, you know, because on one hand you would think, oh, now you have time to write and everything, but at the other hand, it's like this craziness is is overwhelming. Like you could not make up anything that's crazier than what's going on in the world right now, you know. And that's kind of been the case ever since Donald Trump got elected, in a way, you know. I mean, he kind of ruined fiction for a while. <laughs> <laughs> because it's like, how can you this? No, it, it's true. I actually, part of an anthology called The Dawn of the Donald, and I wrote a, a piece called yeah. I'm, I'm Donald Trump's Angry Toupee. And yeah. the toupee tries to choke him in the book. But um, it's it was interesting for, uh, I, I think we're, it's such a different time, just overall. And even with, and I thought this was, when I stood back and looked at it, kind of astounding, we're being very, you know, serious here, but um, the amount of information that should be available to us with the way the internet works and the way news works and stuff like that versus the amount of information that is not actually available to us. 
Mm-hmm. And that became so apparent to me when a friend of mine lives in um, Pennsylvania, a very good friend, and she's telling me about what's happening there and how the counties are closing, county by county they're closing down and they're keeping track of the metrics and they're publicizing how many cases are in the county very broadly to the county residents and stuff like mm-hmm. that. And mm-hmm. then Pennsylvania decided to close down. None of us heard about that. It wasn't in the news. It wasn't, there's no information source that says they're closing down. I had a friend that's in Boston, same thing. It started closing down and nobody heard anything of that. Like I had a friend that was going to do a road trip from here up to Erie, Pennsylvania. And I was like, you're going to have to find some local news media and see what they're saying about closures because it's not being communicated how they're responding to this sort of thing and all of that. And I had to tell her because she she was surprised when I say, yeah, Yeah. she was surprised when um, Florida finally said it was closing because she watches, um, I think it's Bay New Nine or something she pays Mm -hmm. attention to. She goes, oh, you're closing. I said, the only reason we're closing is because every other city after the governor said we weren't closing, closed. Every other major metropolitan area closed. So at that point in time, him going, we're closing was kind of just like. What? We already closed. Everybody else already closed. I don't know what you're talking about. Right. But it was interesting that this is not being communicated. Like, he was going to drive from here up, and I said, you better look to see what states are closed. Like, where you won't be able to stop and get gas or go, like, some of the restaurants are even, um, depending on the type of restaurant, more closed and stuff. It's, But it was mind-boggling to me to think we have... All of, all of this available to us and nobody knows what's happening because it's not that real news is not being communicated anywhere. We, we get headlines. Yeah, we get headlines. And that's really interesting you said that because my sister who lives now, well, she moved from Virginia back where I'm, I grew up uh, recently in the past few months and uh, lives where my father and my brother live in the small town of Tuscumbia. It sounds like some kind of foreign country or something, but it it's, does actually. But it's a uh, it's an Indian name, you know. It's in it's in like Northwest Alabama, and uh, we had planned to have my my dad, who's in his eighties, and stepmom. Well, they were planning to come down in uh, May before this all happened. It was it was going to be a huge trip because they don't really travel. They were coming down, and my sister was coming with them, and we rented a place out at the beach. Well, of course, you know that that's all out. That was all off, right? Because, I mean, they can't be traveling anywhere. They're in their 80s. And my sister says the other day, because she, she's in, like, Northwest Alabama, where, you know, they don't they don't see a lot of cases there, or at least not reported. So they're kind of feeling like, hey, maybe we could open things up, you know? And she says to me, she goes, oh, well, do you still have the place at the beach so that we can come? I might just come down. And I'm like, what are you thinking? <laughs> I mean, they're not allowing people to do rentals here now, vacation rentals. You know, I mean, of course I canceled that. And so she's not realizing, you know, like you say, they're not getting that news. They're not knowing. And and she goes, well, are people flying? And I said, well, only crazy people, um, you know, <laughs> or if you absolutely have to go somewhere. Well, we talked about this earlier, the idea that, that the, the virus is invisible, that you can't really see it. So if you live in an area where not a lot of people are, and you're not in a hospital or seeing people for real, it, it doesn't seem like it's a, a serious threat. Right. 
Well, it is. And even if you go, like I go to the grocery store and I live in, um, you know, uh, part of the town where there is a huge, one of the largest retirement communities, um, which is called on top of the world. And it's a huge Mm -hmm. retirement community, you know, like I feel like it's its own city actually. So there's a ton of people who are in a, everybody's prone to this. So I'm going to say that on the podcast so nobody can misconstrue that, but very prone because their health is you know, in a very tenuous state. And I go into the uh, grocery store near me and I have masks and gloves. I have a whole routine that I do when I go into the store. I don't take my cell phone or anything. I have wipes when I get back to the car to wipe off my card and my keys and all of that stuff. And I go in there and there's a ton of elderly people just walking around totally fine. And I'm like, it's not how well that supermarket takes, you know, precautions with their people. They have screens, they have gloves, they have masks, right? But you have a ton of people going into these supermarkets and they're walking around and I'm like, it's, it isn't a visual thing. You can't look at somebody and they have red spots and go, okay, they have Corona, you know, like they have the virus. And especially because like, Almost anything you can have invisible carriers. It's it's funny people are talking about that, but every disease pretty much like that, flu, all that, you can have people who are invisible carriers of it that aren't showing symptoms, chickenpox. There are kids that have gotten chickenpox and had no symptoms, and then you test them and they have the antibodies. And mm-hmm. without the visual situation, we as a society don't acknowledge the existence of it. Like, mm-hmm. I have a friend that... Um, a coworker who's going out and getting fast food all the time. And I'm like, what are you doing? Not that I want to put them, those people out of a job, but you're talking about people who are making minimum wage or barely above. They're not people that like have a huge savings. They're also not people that have great health coverage. So if they are sick, the likelihood that they are going to go to work is pretty high. Because they're going to go to work unless they get sent home from work or something like that. And I'm like, they're making your food and putting your food in the bag. And they're like, and he literally looked at me yesterday and was like, oh, I didn't think about that. And I'm like, you know, trust me, I would like some Tijuana Flats. I would like some tacos delivered to my house that I can just sit on my couch and eat by Uber Eats. I'd love that. But this is how we're not seeing it enough visually to take responsibility because I'll tell you that restaurant's not going to reach out to you who bought a you know, burger at McDonald's and go, by the way, three of our employees came up positive for COVID. They're not saying that. Oh yeah. Yeah, I know. I know. And and, you know, I am, I I admit I am a hypochondriac. Okay. I I actually like in first of February, I ordered a mask. Okay. Not like an N95 mask, but I'll show you. It's my little, little <laughs> it's a it's a fabric mask mine, like, mine has kitties on it like no, kitties are so cute mine's yeah. flat and i was just like so so and and i, and I didn't even tell my husband because i thought he was going to make fun of me and then when i finally did tell him he was like why didn't you order me one <laughs> i'm like i'm sorry okay but i was wearing a mask when people you know were wearing a mask and people were like and my sister was laughing i'm like oh and i'm like look you know just because they they haven't said that everybody should wear a mask. Obviously, I'm just going to lean on the side of caution here and wear my mask and do this, you know. And now we've been getting our groceries delivered, but even still, you know, I I am I am like anal about this. I I wipe my groceries down, you know. I have a whole routine. They come in through the garage. I, I soap everything off, wipe it down. And uh, just yesterday, I saw uh, that there was a employee at a Publix that. 
I go to, the one that I use, uh, has coronavirus. And that, uh, and then it was published, uh, I guess, on maybe the public's website or something, where they were posting like, it. They're they're letting people know, but not everybody's doing that. Right. Not two weeks later, you know, like how long has that sick person been working and not knowing that? Right. That they have? right. I mean, yeah. so so it's already. So I'm glad I've been washing everything off. You know, I mean, I hate to say that, you know, be so paranoid, but I think in this case, my paranoia and hypochondria is maybe a good thing. <laughs> yeah, I don't think it's something paranoia, I, I, have a, I have a friend who, who wrote a whole thing about this where she was like, I'm a, a, a compulsive hand washer normally. Mm-hmm. So she said, now, you know, everybody's washing their hands the way that I, that I try not to do. So she said, when this sort of dies down, it's going to take me years to stop washing my hands because now my brain is telling me, you know, you were right all those years that you did that. Everybody told you you were crazy. You were actually doing the smart thing. So she said for mental health, this is, this is really challenging. Well, yeah, it's super, it's super challenging for people who have, uh, anxiety disorder, you know, and I, and I have anxiety disorder and, and my niece is, is also has it, uh, she has the, it even, even worse than I do, you know, and she, I mean, she's like the kind of person that she doesn't like going traveling anywhere unless she knows that there's a hospital close by, you know, cause she starts getting, uh, having panic attacks. So, so it's really hard for people who with anxiety right now. And, um, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm just, we're just hunkered down and we've been, I've been ordering groceries in and like you say, calling out you, the other thing that's weird about calling out, we actually did try to order out and uh, a couple of times and found out that uh, we're sitting there waiting for the food and it never comes. And it turns out the restaurants were closed and that like, uh, by squad didn't even tell us the restaurants were closed. We're sitting there waiting for it and we're like hungry and everything. And then we're like, damn it. <laughs> Why didn't they tell us, you know? So everything's just kind of haywire right now. And, um, and I, I know, and I'm, and I'm irritated that the people aren't, uh, that are delivering the groceries and stuff aren't wearing masks. I feel like if you're out there buying groceries, you need to be wearing a mask, you know? Yeah, you, you, you should be required masks and gloves. I see the people in the, cause I debated having the groceries delivered. And then when I was in the store the first time, cause I actually am buying and we're going to get back onto books. This is the last one. We're, so I was buying for about writing as an outlet. Yeah. Right. I, uh, I buy for myself. I buy for my son and his husband and their roommate. Cause they're all, and I buy for a friend of mine who has a very severe diabetes and um, she, even her doctors, like, do not go out. So I, I buy all this stuff for just a group of people. And I was in the store, and I'm watching the, buy, uh, you know, the um, uh, Instacart people, no gloves, no masks, doing a couple different orders. Of gr- and I'm like, no, 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 what are you doing? Like, you should be, like, you should be the most supreme thing. And again, I think a lot of people do not take it very seriously because it's not a visual thing and it hasn't impacted them, mm-hmm. you know, right. it right. has it the moment it impacts you, then you'll suddenly take it seriously. But, um, like one, one gentleman I was talking to, he's like, well, I was in the army and we got shots for everything and all this stuff. And I'm like, that's cool. So my daughter's a medic in the army. And she is in quarantine right now because they were testing people and her roommate was in direct contact with somebody who had COVID. Now, luckily, they both tested negative, but they have another four days of quarantine. Mm -hmm. And she's like very healthy, young people in the army are getting sick and dying from this. 
And they, yeah. of course, have 8 million vaccines and some made-up stuff that is not, yeah. you know, whatever. But <laughs> um, it's interesting. Anyway, back to books. So let's talk about what you're going to write. So you may write something about um, the environment. Yeah, yeah. I've really been interested. I've been tracking. I've been, you know, as you say, gathering string on um, environmental things. And I've been looking at it from, like, a hyper-local uh, aspect and then how like uh, we here are kind of a microcosm for Florida in general you know here in like Pinell- Pinellas County because we're you know a peninsula on a peninsula <laughs> you know so we are in a, a unique situation in terms of uh, climate change uh, in regard to you know some other places and stuff and you look at what else is happening and and um you know, it's enough to make me sometimes, I mean, we, my husband and I talk about it all the time about like, okay, how much longer can we stay here? You know, like how yeah. long do we, what is the, what is the, the point where everything is going to become so expensive because of the changes with climate that we're going to have to move, you know? And so we have like a, you know, a couple of different plans scenarios, but I've, yeah, I've been, I've been working, writing on it and I haven't decided exactly what I want to do with it, you know, um, and trying to figure out who I want to sell it to, which is another big thing and a problem right now because the media industry is suffering. So it's all, any pretty much your writing in terms of nonfiction is just kind of a labor of love, you know? Because you have to have, you kind of have to have a side gig, uh, you know, which I do. And so I have like a little Etsy store <laughs> that's kind of my side gig. And then I uh, do my writing. Um, so I think it's going to be really difficult to try to get the money to do for big projects um, and writing and stuff like that. But, and then otherwise, I've been writing a lot of more just kind of essays during this whole thing. You know, I think that's. I think that's the thing that I've been kind of falling back on is just writing essays and writing about different experiences, which I've never been like a kind of personal essay person because I feel like, uh, who cares about my life, you know? <laughs> but, but, you know, I mean, it's like my life's not really that interesting. But, you know, just your experience and, I, and, and things about uh, whether it's just the reaction to being alive during this incredible time that we're, we're living in. I mean, we are living through a series of a, a really remarkable things. And so as a writer, there's this, this thing where you just want to capture that, you know, in your writing. You want to have something like to have a record, you know, so that you can look back later, you know, and say, oh, this is what that was like. Because it's so important, I think. No, I, I agree 100%. But what about fiction? Do you think we can get some fiction work out of you? Because that you could even just self-publish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know, and I've been thinking about that. I've been thinking about my fiction and doing that to some short stories. Like I had a series of short stories that I was working on at one time um, about. They were romance, which you might like. They were all romance stories. Yeah, I would like that. People, people, <laughs> of, people of different ages of going through different series of romance and they were all interconnected because they all knew each other but each story the stories were interconnected because everybody they all were the characters knew each other but each story was consent alone on its own too you know mm-hmm. from you know from the the woman who was having an affair with a married man to the 
to the lesbian couple who were trying to have a child. You know, they all they all like worked together, went to school together, or were friends with each other. And I had started that. I had like about seven stories written, and um, so I've thought about going back to that because that was kind of. It was kind of different. It's kind of different though. Like once you get, you know, like once you get married and, and you're you're happily married, which thankfully I am, you know, the the romance stories uh, weren't as pressing as pressing to me as they were when I was like looking for romance. You know? <laughs> that makes sense. But it sounds like if you have seven stories already, you're like this close to a book. You're like super close. You could pull that off and dust that off and. I think that would be fantastic, you know? Yeah, yeah. yeah that's what one of my friends was telling me I should get back into doing that because it was like, and I thought about it more, you know. Like I said, it, I feel like I've been slowly um, over time kind of reawakening to my writing um, because I had that, that, just that like that dead period of not being able to write, and that was just so frustrating. Um, and, and I think the thing that's kind of helped you asked me like, what, what did I do? One of the things that, uh, has helped was that it just, you know, I would still get contacted to do some writing assignments. And then when I would do that, it would make me realize, okay, yeah, I can still do this. I can still write. I can, it, it started making me remember how much I liked it. So, because initially it was just so hard that I was just like, oh, I can't do this anymore. It's just so frustrating. I mean, I had, um, the first year after I finished the book, I had this big writing assignment and I would be writing and I would spend like all night and get two paragraphs written and I would just be in tears. And, um, and I was just, it was just uh, terrible. And I don't know, maybe other people go through that. I don't know if that's just a, a me thing or I think, but I do think in hindsight now, it maybe had a lot to do with just grief, you know, I, I think you can. I think every person can go through different forms of, I call it writer's block, because I don't think writer's block is what, you know, the TV shows make it out to be. And I think that, you know, I find if I have a lot of stressful stuff going on in my full-time job and I try to come home and as much as I'm like, I'm going to try to write every single day, if that comes home and I literally just want to sit there and not have to deal with anything because I've spent the entire day dealing with things and people. And I really just want to sit and binge a cheesy show on Netflix, like Fuller House or something. So I'm not thinking about what's happened. I mean, it's true. Like, uh, I can't tell you how many times I've even gone back to um, old, funny, cheesy, cheesy 80s movies I watched, you know, like the silly romantic comedies, pretty much anything John Hughes did because It's, it's almost like, a, okay, I'm going to go there and it's a, like a happy place I'm going to go to. And I think that if you're not in that right creative space and you went through the loss of your mother, and I, I, I'm very sorry to hear that. I I know that I lost my mother about 18 years ago now. And it, it, it is, you regardless of knowing it or having, you know, knowing what was happening or having the time or age and stuff, it's a loss. And you have to get yourself where you're right again to be able to write again mm-hmm. or you have to take that and write about what you're experiencing in that moment at that time, whether anybody's going to listen to it or not. It's like journaling. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. You, you know, but I think an outlet for all of your emotions at the time. Yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, and I did write a short story, um, in some noise about that. And it was, um, you know, it was like, you know, 
cutting a vein and (laughs) bleeding onto the page, you know, kind of thing. And, uh, it was just, it was just so painful, but it was also just this mental fog that I felt like I was in. And, um, you know, I felt like I couldn't find, like, I walk into a room and go, what did I walk into this room for? You know, that kind of thing where you're like, Oh, I, you know, I, uh, so, uh, but, but I'm, but I'm glad I've, I've gone through it and I'm onto the other side and, and pressing ahead. So, so yeah, I will be writing more things. And every time I get an opportunity too, like this, okay, this is a great, you know, every time you can talk about writing or get together with other writers and, or, you know, contribute to something, uh, in a writing way, it is an encouragement. It, 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 it like primes that well. And um, as long as you can keep priming the well, something's going to come out. Mm-hmm. I think you should. And I mean, with, I, I, I hate to say it this way, but with Kindle Unlimited, you could put your stories up. You don't have to do the whole ISBN thing. You have to get a cover thrown on that. But you, you could put even these short stories up and just have it out there and start moving it. Even the book you have on the shelf. Yes, you could redo the whole book. Or you could just go through it one more time from an editor's view just to make mm-hmm. sure there's nothing. And not story editor, I mean punctuation and yeah. did you use the right tense editing, you know? And then put it up there. There's nothing wrong with getting, I think, these works out if you've done them. Just get them out, release them, and move on to the next thing, you know? I think that would be great. I love your writing, so I think it would just be brilliant oh, okay. to have more stories from you out there because you have a great voice. And although, yes, you did all these journalistic stories, I, I would love to read this more. I love Vegas. Me and Jen have been to Vegas. We went to the World Series of Poker there. We don't talk poker. about Vegas. I went to World Series of Poker? Yeah, no, I, I played Texas Hold'em. I was actually, I got to round, I think it was round six. Yeah, mm-hmm. it was awesome. it was a very interesting experience. Yeah, Jen won more money than I did I played roulette. (laughs) Oh, that's great. That's great. You know, I play poker too. And I actually played in the World Series of Poker uh, as a, in the journalism tournament, in the journalism tournament. And, uh, and I had, I really had no idea. I really, when I first played the first year I played, I lost the uh, second of year is uh, the second year I had like a five-minute lesson from a guy at work, and he told me he got the best advice ever. He said, do not uh, bluff. He said, because you're a woman, nobody's going to believe you. He said, you know, so he told me the basics. And, and you know, I came in third place. <laughs> well, see, that's a story right by itself right there. That is and a, that's an year awesome I forth, and I was like, oh my God. So then I started playing on, on weekends because I was like, you know, maybe, maybe I can do this. Mm-hmm. And so I started playing on weekends and every time I got over a hundred bucks, I would quit. And so I, so I did that for about three months. And, and then one night I, uh, I lost and I did one more buy-in. It was like a $40 buy-in. I did another buy-in. Lost that, got up and went to the ATM, did another buy-in, lost that, and then I quit when I didn't no, play. It's, it's good. I love tournament-type play, and um, yeah, I used to do poker Yeah, poker nights with my friends and stuff. But, okay, we need you to write more. we got to wrap up this episode, okay. and then we'll go to the next. So where do people find your 
not burning bush ready. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so funny. I'm so glad now that I know that. Now I know where that's coming from. Uh, I, uh, I would say you find my writing on, um, I, I post a lot more on my uh, French Florida Facebook page than I do actually on the French Florida uh, website. And then I have a lynnwaddell.com website uh, where it's just kind of my professional site where I have clips of my work and things like that. And, uh, but my, uh, but there, and then of course, you know, you can access the book on Amazon. Wonderful. Well, thank you very much for being on the podcast. It has been wonderful. Um, this has been Drinking with Authors. Um, our guest has been Lynn Waddell. I'm Erica Lance. J.M. Piquet. Why do you forget that every single time? You do that and you forget it every single time. Okay. Until we talk to you next time, guys, it was great to hear, uh, hearing from you. That's how much I've, Jim, I've had to drink. <laughs> okay. Anyway, next time. Bye, guys. <laughs>